1: down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a
2: thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at
0: mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
2: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. This is the first time in my life that I've spent three days... Wondering why Huddersfield didn't get a penalty. It's okay, though. It all evens itself out over the course of a championship final. Unless, of course, it doesn't. It all means that Nottingham Forest are back in the Premier League. Great news for Panini 87 fans. You'll never beat Des Walker. Can Pierre van Hooyduk still do it in the top flight? Also today, the recriminations continue into the shambolic organisation of the Champions League final and the treatment of the Liverpool fans as UEFA and the French police desperately try to find some more fake tickets down the back of the sofa. As it's the end of the season, finally some time to draw breath and take time to pause until tonight when Scotland and Ukraine play off to see who plays off against Wales to see who gets a creditable draw against England on the 29th of November. We've had some interesting and some lovely emails. We've hopefully got time to read them, take your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Jonathan Wilson. Hello. Morning. Hey, Dan. I'm very well. Thank you. Hello, Robin Cowan. Hi, Max. And hello. Bonjour, ça va, Filippo Clare. Ça
0: va très bien. Hello, Max.
2: Uh, hello, hello, hello. Uh, let's start then with the championship uh, playoff final. Uh, Nottingham Forest beating Huddersfield 1-0. They'll be back in the Premier League after 23 years away. Jim says, how did Huddersfield not get at least one penalty? on Sunday. How can Var fail so badly? I'm a Forest fan, he says, I dread to think what Terriers fans think of John Moss. It's really interesting. Quite often when we talk about football matches, we say, look, we don't want to we want to be, you know, the people that don't talk about decisions, that don't and and you know, and focus just on the football and the match. And and it wasn't entire. it wasn't just those two moments. And I think there were difficult calls for John Moss, actually. But how has VAR not given Huddersfield a penalty? It's ridiculous.
3: Yeah, I mean, I found the whole thing a bit bizarre that they suddenly decided to bring VAR in for the playoff finals. And I think the if, if it wasn't there, I don't think we'd be talking about it as much because you'd say, right, OK, John Moss didn't see it or, you know, didn't have a good angle. And they they were difficult um, in the moments. I think, you know, we all had to see it a, a few times. But then... Yeah, maybe they forgot to bring in the VAR <laughs> when it actually happened. There was just an empty room with someone, no one there. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I just think it, it's a real shame when it's, it's a game with of that magnitude, with those consequences, and that's the thing that they're talking about, because it's hard to kind of just put that aside and put the rest in context possibly Nottingham Forest did deserve it I don't think Huddersfield actually had a shot on target during that game so if you think about it that way then you could say that perhaps Nottingham Forest were the better team and deserved to go up but it's just it's it's really it's just such a shame because Huddersfield fans will feel aggrieved and that's the thing they'll point to and probably this will be talked about for years and years and it's just yeah it's just really annoying
2: 'cause I, I look I've met John Moss I like John Moss he's a nice man I suspect he would have been wants he would have wanted to be told to go to the monitor I mean I don't know which one you thought was more but I, I mean I thought they were both just fouls basically
3: Yeah it's a difficult one because the first one I think you probably could argue I think Lars Simmons has said this before that it's probably a, a penalty and a dive isn't it because he kind of did make a lot of it and then the second one he was sort of clattered into a little bit It was interesting because actually Joby McEnough on the Sky coverage afterwards felt that the first one was and the second one wasn't. So, I mean, again, that was all basically all they were discussing after after kind of celebrating the fact that Nottingham Forest had had gone up. Yeah, I mean, also a slightly bizarre decision that that should be John Moss's final game because I remember um, Mark Chapman did a fantastic interview with Mike Dean and he was saying he wants his final game to have nothing on it you know, he doesn't want to be going out with a kind of controversial decision that actually means something. And I thought that was really interesting, especially coming from Mike Dean, who obviously likes uh He likes to be in the spotlight. <laughs> so, yeah, I just thought the whole thing was was very bizarre, very bizarre.
2: Nostalgically, Philippe, are you, are you delighted to see Nottingham Forest back in the Premier League?
3: Um... Yes, I I
0: have to say that. Um, I think we'd have a few things to say as well about the media facilities. I think Jonathan Wilson might want to intervene (laughs) here. (laughs) But uh, of course, it is wonderful to have a big name uh, back uh, back in the Premier League. Uh, But just going back to the VAR thing, I was just wondering, how long is it going to be before a club that has been on the wrong end of a VAR decision or not decision, is going to take it to the next step, given the importance, the magnitude of the game, and ask for compensation. It's actually a serious question. It's like when it is obvious that there has been a serious mistake and you think, actually, this has cost us something like £120 million pounds or something like that.
2: So then have you got, hang on, then have you got courts asking if it's clear and obvious? So, we, that's what we, would, saying, exactly. <laughs> so we would have,
0: we would have var, var. So, VAR. Uh, VAR, VAR. so the VAR decisions would be passed on to a VAR tribunal. Does, it, do then, does
2: then you know the prosecution or the defence say we 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 now call our we now call our lead witness Mr. Peter Walter? That, <laughs> what's going to happen?
3: And then he'll agree, he'll agree with whatever the, the initial decision was.
4: But I, I, th- I think there's a wider point there, uh, which is uh, given what Berlin Leeds were saying about evidence finances. It just sort of feels like more and more clubs are looking to the courts to see if there's some recourse there.
3: With Derby as well?
4: Yeah, and I, I do wonder if that's partly to do with this new breed of owners that sort of 30, 40 years ago, I mean, partly football just wasn't as important and there wasn't as much money involved, and, but also the owners were sort of people who had bought the club as a, as a sporting investment rather than a business investment. And maybe when you do that, you accept that sport, occasionally people get things wrong. Uh, whereas, when it's a business investment, you want to play by the rules of, of the business, uh, which it turns out with accounts and things, is, it can be very, very difficult to, to sort out. And I think it's then natural that that should extend, particularly with FAR, because you know a referee, yeah, running quickly forty yards from the action is vision blocked. You sort of accept well, some some things he won't see properly. Whereas. Yeah, you know, when you've got 20 camera angles or whatever and you're still getting it wrong, that that suddenly you, you think, well, maybe that is actionable.
2: Uh, before anybody writes in, John Moss probably wasn't running quickly, but, you know. (laughs) 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 Quickly for him. (laughs) Anyway, that that isn't fair. My apologies to John Moss.
0: No, one thing about about Nottingham Forest, to go back to that, that we shouldn't forget is a a thing that is causing me, um, as much as I like the idea of having, you know, the European champion back in the... um, in the Premier League, Nottingham having having a team in the in the top division, uh, there has to be question asked about the ownership of of Nottingham Forest and and the fact that we have an owner who is also the owner of Olympiacos and multi club ownership is something that I'm not too happy about. So I'm very happy for Nottingham Forest and happy for the friends of mine who are Nottingham Forest fans, um, but I'm also you know a bit uneasy about the fact that. Um,
2: can you just spell out? I mean, I, I mean, I, I think I know most people know, but can you explain exactly the the big issue of multi club ownership if it, if the clubs are not in the same countries?
0: There are multiple issues. There are multiple issues. Um, one of the most obvious, I mean, the most obvious one is obviously if the two clubs are are going to compete in the same competition, a European competition. In the case of Nottingham Forest and Olympiakos, I think it's fairly uh, unlikely this is going to happen uh, very soon. It's much more in a way, uh, worrying when we go to things such as the transfer market and the various accommodations that can be made between various clubs. I'm not suggesting for one second, by the way, Max, that this is what is going to happen or what has happened. I'm saying it's just it lays the ground for some very strange um, very strange moves. Um, maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that a bit later, because we see we've just heard that Mouchron in Belgium had gone bankrupt. Moukron was under the aegis of Gerard Lopez, who also owned Boa Vista, who, had owned, who owned Bordeaux, or who had owned Bordeaux, um, had owned Lille, and so forth. And it's, it's, it's a big problem. Uh, multi-club ownership, I, which is extraordinary. I think most people, including UEFA, were against it. And at, actually, at one point, I thought, well, actually it's prohibited, but no, it's not. So you can have multiple clubs in multiple countries. Just as the city football club has 10 clubs in the world. And yes, I think that creates a genuine problem uh, when it comes to the integrity of football and the transfer market being one of the things that immediately come to mind.
4: But the nostalgia thing is interesting, isn't it? The, the, the you know, people of, of our generation sort of think of Forest being a big club. we through the 80s, well, late 70s and 80s, they, they were a really big club. And, and actually, when, when you look at it, you know, they, you know, in terms of average gait, in terms of past history, they're they're sort of a middle-sized clubs, it's entirely natural for them to be a second-flight team, but there does seem to be this wave of sympathy because they were big in the eighties. Um But I, I, I was at the City Ground. Uh, when would it have been? The season before last for Forest against Leeds, and it was just like stepping back into the mid-nineties in terms of the media facilities. I mean, a you know, great atmosphere and everything. And, and Forest and Leeds, I presume it's club-related, but there seems to be some sort of animosity there, which I wasn't really expecting, but. Yeah, you know, it, it It is like like stepping back into what journalism was when, when I first began, to have this tiny room in the car park with some awful tea, some dreadful sandwiches, and then this sort of long walk up to a press box where you can't actually see anything and there's no monitors. Uh, so hopefully they'll, they'll upgrade that.
2: Um, but if we can move on from press facilities, which I know <laughs> is a, oh, this is really care about. Let's talk about um the, the fallout from the Champions League final on Monday French authorities complained of what they called quote industrial scale ticket fraud. French sports minister amelie Udea Castera said there were quote no problems regarding Madrid supporters and the Spanish side had controlled their travelling fans better than Liverpool who had let their supporters quote out in the wild. Liverpool chairman Tom Werner has written a letter demanding an apology for her comments. The events were not only incredibly dangerous for all who attended, but raised serious questions about the organisation and operation of the event. He said this should be the focus of all interested parties today, rather than pursuing a blame game strategy via press conferences. He called it one of the worst security collapses in recent memory. UEFA have said a comprehensive independent review will be conducted. Uh, Evidence will be gathered from all relevant parties and the findings of the independent report will be made public once completed. Upon receipt of the findings, UEFA will evaluate The next step. Ian asks, one for Philippe, what proportion of French people does he think agree with the conclusions of their politicians as the causes of the Stade de France chaos?
0: Let's put it that way. That percentage, if it were to be translated into uh, votes in the next national elections, would probably get the minister about 0.1% of uh, the assembly. I don't think anybody's buying it. Um, He's in, um, Monsieur Darmanin, the uh, minister of the interior, the Home Office um, um, secretary is uh, in a very delicate situation. Um, public opinion is very much against the position of the government. We actually are starting to see very slow a, a slow realignment of the official version. Like, for example, the sports minister, who was uh, fully uh, by Darmanin's side and, and basically playing a blame game with Liverpool supporters, uh, is now expressing her sympathy for those fans who were not able to see the final or were late coming into the stadium. So we can see there's a change. There was a front front page by Liberation which showed uh, uh, Darmanin with a a Pinocchio nose (laughs) and the headline, On refake le match, which is a kind of bilingual pun, which is not very good, but actually very significant. Uh, Basically, I don't think anybody in France buys Uh, The official version of events, especially since now there are there are elements uh, new information is coming to light that, for example, some Real Madrid were confronted with fans were confronted with similar problems when it comes to uh, so-called fake tickets, uh, that the number of these fake tickets were actually family tickets, which were not scanned properly. And every time it was not scanned properly, it counts as a fake. Right. And in the end, they were able to get in. So nobody believes as well the figure that like something like 40,000 fans presented fake tickets. Basically, it's a PR disaster. You might have seen that, actually, the um, deputy mayor of the trois Arrondissement, where the fan zone was in Vincennes, actually sent a letter to, uh, to Liverpool uh, Football Club apologising for a few things that hadn't worked, perhaps, at the fan zone, but also thanking the Liverpool fans for their discipline, uh, their good humour, and the fact that they mingled with the locals and everybody was happy. So I think I've spoken at length about that. And, but I think you get the idea that uh, it's certainly not, oh, those horrible English football fans. That uh, narrative hasn't worked at all for the authorities.
2: I-, I wonder if, I don't know if you've seen Steve Rotherham, the, the mayor of Liverpool, what happened to him. Um, Andy hunter has got a piece in The Guardian that I tweeted today. He was told by riot police to climb a fence uh, he had his all his ID, his phone, his wallet, everything nicked by pickpockets. Um, the police didn't seem that interested. Then someone explained that this was the mayor of Liverpool and he was immediately taken through and given a duplicate ticket. He was in the VIP section. He said to Infantino, there's chaos here. Infantino said, oh, it's not a FIFA event. Sarkozy was there. Um, who was sort of moved on. He then chatted to Seferin, who said, like, I politely introduced myself. I explained what I'd witnessed and the concerns I had. He seemed oblivious to it. He said to me, we've only had three months to organize this. We've killed ourselves to get this game on, to which I replied, I'm more concerned that people aren't killed outside. He indicated I was being disrespectful. I just couldn't take my seat and watch the game. In the end, I was just devastated at what could have happened outside. I don't know if you, Wilson, sort of the, because I know you were there, like, if you witnessed any more sort of fallout or what the sort of chat was on your way home amongst other journalists.
4: I oh, mean yeah. what's, what's interested me on the on the Sunday was uh or would have been the Monday, uh was the the tone of the coverage in in Le Monde was the paper I saw, which reflects you know, exactly what, what Philippe said. I, I sort of assumed that there'd be a kind of um oh it's you know it's it's typical English hooligan behaviour. But that, that wasn't the tone at all. Um which I, I again this is from a, a quick sort of scan of, of French press. Um clearly there's been all the Gilets jaunes protests and there seems to be disquiet about how they've been dealt with and this you know certainly in some quarters seems to be being betrayed as part of the same french police recourse to brutality as a you know as a as a, as a first action I means the, the use of tear gas which seems to be just a feature of going to football in france every time i go there's tear gas fired for no reason at all so you start to think well I don't know whether France can ever host football if that's, if that's how their authorities behave but there's also there's also a massive UEFA problem and I know you don't want to talk about journalist facilities but this was the 18th Champions League final I've done I've done 15 Europa League finals or UEFA Cup finals um, so I've done something like 60 major finals until this year every single one I'm talking about Cups and Nations Copa America uh, Libertadores you get I mean, it seems really basic. You get your accreditation, which gets you into the stadium, and then you get a ticket that tells you which desk to sit at. And for some reason, this year, both in Seville and here, you didn't get a ticket. Now, some desk had a sticker on saying, you know, the Times or the Sun or whatever. Uh, and I, I had one of those in Seville. This time, I didn't. And it's just a free-for-all. And you sort of say to me, what are you doing? Why, why is this not properly ticketed? And it's just sort of a... You know, as if somehow COVID's made them forget how you meant to organise these things.
2: And I suppose the point is, if that's happening there on something that's quite straightforward, then on a bigger scale with hundreds of thousands of fans. Exactly. There's, you
4: know, there's, there's a really basic bit of organisation that, I mean, in the end, is not really problematic, although it does cause rarities among journalists. Obviously, journalists from the same paper want to sit together because you need to discuss what you're doing. But, you know, it's not. It's not in the wider scheme of things, it's not important. But why they've just stopped a really basic bit of organisation that cannot be hard to do I mean, I, I sort of felt that in Seville, that UEFA and the local authorities are sort of they're playing with fire here. Because in Seville, 100,000 Rangers fans, 50,000 Frankfurt fans, supposedly, I, I suspect those numbers are slightly inflated, but, you know, huge, huge numbers. I was amazed by how sort of laissez-faire the, the attitude was. And I, I sort of thought, well, maybe that's just Andalusian police, and it's just how they do things here. But it was very, very similar in Paris. That, the, yeah, be, oh, it'll be fine. And then as soon as it stops being fine, this mass overreaction. Um, so, so my feeling was there were insufficient police there and those who were there were sort of over-equipped with tear gas and pepper spray and, and you know, over-keen to use it. But I just sort of think more, more or less tooled-up police would have, been, would have been
0: better. Just one thing here. I think, uh, Jonathan, you're putting the finger exactly where it hurts and where it should be put. And I think it has to do with certain culture of crowd control at football games in France. It's not just about it's not about Liverpool fans or Real Madrid fans. It's the fact that French um, Ligue 1 has got a terrible problem with crowd control. On one hand, it's totally um, it accepts a kind of behaviour that is totally unacceptable from some groups of fans, and on the other hand, it when it wields violence, it is ultra violence. Um, fans are now, in France, cannot travel to their team's uh, games. You know, for example, a number of them are the prefet intervene and say, well, no, there's going to be no way end for this particular game, it's too dangerous. And they're treated like animals. And when you treat people like animals, they behave like animals. And the French police, who are not specifically trained for football, by the way, when they encounter football fans in the context of a European final, what they think as well is... Football fans in the context of Ligue 1 and Ligue 2 and National, And therefore, you've got a kind of um, normality of violence, so to speak. And therefore, for them, it's not a very... A a fan, for them, a football fan, is a potential criminal, delinquent.
2: David says, look, read read of that row over scenes. Uh, Does the... Does UEFA not exacerbate the problem with their ticket allocation policy? You know, for every major final, we hear news about how competing clubs have a meagre allocation of tickets. UEFA trot out the usual tickets for football family bollocks. The stands are awash in all areas with the colours of competing teams. It's clear the family football family, aren't so much interested in football as they are in cashing in. They're putting costly tickets in the hands of people who aren't too bothered whether they go or not, at the same time leaving tens of thousands of fans of the two competing clubs desperate and prepared to pay over the odds. A huge black market's created. Tickets are changing hands for eye-watering sums of money, which in turn leads to a lucrative market for forgeries. With so many fans in the host city getting more and more desperate as kickoff approaches, they're more likely to take a punt on that dodgy bloke from the bar the other night. Um, if, If you wait for a series about fake tickets causing the issues, which... It wasn't on this occasion. It's a mess of their own making. Um, Robin, what have you made of the the whole situation?
3: For me, it's just really depressing, and I think, well, I mean, I've got to be careful as a BBC employee, for this, but it's just, it just, it just feels like society in general, not just in this country, that there's just no one wants to take any responsibility for anything, and it's just always immediately who can you. Put the blame on. And that's immediately what they did. You know, as it, Jonathan was there; and we all saw on the TV, they just flashed up a message saying that fans had arrived late. And it's just, we could all see. No, they hadn't. They were all there. And just generally, I mean, it, it's not just being a mum, but I just thought, I don't want to take my son to a football match. You know, seeing these harrowing scenes of adults lifting up their kids so they wouldn't be crushed, possibly. And then being tear gassed and you know you hear accounts of people who were you know at Hillsborough and survived and then them getting flashbacks and PTSD it's just it's so depressing and I just I think the most depressing thing is they've obviously commissioned an independent review and I've just no faith in it whatsoever because well we've seen what happens before
2: Uh, All right, that'll do for part one. Uh, Part two, we will uh, look ahead to Scotland versus Ukraine.
1: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST.
2: Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, Sean says, will you still come and do the live show in Dublin, even if it means having to queue up for the airport now (laughs) to leave Dublin? (laughs) (laughs) Listen, hey, we've sailed We've sailed home from Dublin before and we'll do it again. Uh, Cameron says, for the live show that Sid's on, will he just talk for the first 15 minutes and then say cheerio? Yeah, well, he's contractually obliged to be there for the whole thing. You can find out who's coming to all of them. Uh, We are in Leeds, Birmingham, Manchester, Dublin, London and Glasgow. Um, we're still not as popular in Birmingham as everywhere else, but it might be our fault for just booking an arena twice the size of everywhere else. Uh, but come on, people of the Midlands, go to myticket.co.uk. Scotland versus Ukraine. Uh, you and Murray be with us on tomorrow's pod. I mean, this is such an interesting game for so many reasons, isn't it, Robin? I mean, you, the the kind of in in footballing terms, kind of how how good Ukraine can be. How should Scotland approach this? Obviously they want to go to the World Cup, but there is obviously so much, naturally so much emotional support for Ukraine here.
3: Yeah, I feel a bit bad for Scotland actually, because I do feel even Graham Soonis <laughs> said yeah. that he wants Ukraine to to win and to go on and, and win the World Cup. I think he yeah, that might be a bit far fetched. But yeah, it's gonna be very strange. I think it's gonna be probably quite emotional beforehand i've seen that duolingo have tweeted today saying scotland fans here's the ukrainian national anthem if you wanted to learn that and and sing it i'm not sure if how many will take them up on that but yeah it's it's going to be really interesting as you said in a football sense how good this ukrainian side will be i think half of them played in the domestically that was obviously put a stop to once the war started so a lot of them haven't had any competitive football since December but then you've also got quite a few of them who have and let's not forget they reached the quarterfinals of the Euro so they're not they're not a bad team so yeah it's just going to be really interesting I'm sure the build-up's going to be full of full of emotion and then yeah I I think I think as Andy Robertson as as Steve Clark said in the build-up they have enormous sympathy but obviously they want to go to the World Cup and that's all they can focus on
2: yeah I mean Philippe Nick Ames actually said he spent time with the Ukrainian squad, and they said, and I guess they would say this, but they don't want to be they don't want to be sort of given a place at the World Cup. They want to earn their right. That's part of being an elite sports person. It, it, it's fascinating that sort of psychology of sport. What what the situation will do for that Ukrainian team, and 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 it will be impossible to know until it happens. If that it sort of makes them overall or just inspires them to, to levels that they have never reached before.
0: I mean, obviously it could potentially it's overwhelming. It could really play against you when the emotions run very high. Memories of Brazil 2014. Sometimes it can be it can have a really devastating impact on the level of performance. And the other thing for this Ukrainian team as well, I mean it, it must have been I mean the training camp they've been in Slovenia I believe since the 1st of May to get ready because about two-thirds of the squad, I believe, haven't really played any football since December, as Robin was saying. How on earth do you prepare for that within within that camp? I don't know. And I, I think that's part of the fascination for what is hap- going to happen tonight has to do, of course, with how this Ukrainian team can possibly react, can possibly manage the event, how they've been prepared for this psychologically much more, actually, I think, than technically or tactically, psychologically. Um, there's one thing I'd I'd, I'd like to uh, add to that, just an en passant, um, you know, when we were preparing the th- uh, preparing this podcast, I had a look, right, where can I watch this game? And I realise it's on pay TV in the UK. I find it absolutely scandalous. But there you go, I had to say it, and then we can move on to the game itself.
2: You make a very good point, and, and you know... Uh, it would be great if more football was free to air, wouldn't it? I? Mean that is a, a a a a true point. Chris says, "Look, there's a Poland play Wales tonight. They're going to arrest everybody. They obviously play the winners on Sunday. Uh, we'll talk about the Nations League a bit more uh, tomorrow." Um, Chris says, "As a Liverpool fan, let's watch my team play every possible game this season." Um, I, I'd say I'm ready for a brief break from football. Uh, to recharge my batteries, get excited about next season. I was then shocked to find out that England play four games next month in the Nations League. I firmly believe that no international football should be played in the summer unless it's a fully-fledged international tournament. Could the pod explain to me if anyone gives a shit about these games? And if not, should we bin them and give footballers and fans a break? Thanks, Chris. I may sound like a grumpy old man. I'm only 28. Um, uh, uh, Robin, he's got a point, hasn't he? I mean, I, I... there's this thing tonight called the the, the what is it the fino, the right? Yeah. Italy and Argentina are playing at Wembley tonight. The winner of the Euros versus the Copper America. Like, who needs
3: this? <laughs> well, I think we know the answer to that, don't we? <laughs> it's it's just yeah, filling the coffers over. Your way for or FIFA. I mean, yeah, it's ridiculous. They're just shoehorning in any game. I'll tell you who doesn't give a shit about this, Kevin De Bruyne. Did you hear what he said about the Nations League? No. He, oh, he just said, I'm treating this like a friendly, I need a break. I couldn't care less, basically. So yeah, fair play to him. <laughs> he seems very honest. I don't think
4: I've ever got the end of the season so so in need of a break. And I was sort of, you know, Saturday night, obviously... <laughs> <laughs> the writing and the consequences went on rather longer than, than i'd hoped uh and I, I listened back to some of this pod and i sound absolutely shattered on that so i apologize for <laughs> I didn't that didn't want to say didn't want to yeah. say
2: <laughs> you went from you went from full macom the previous pod <laughs> post sundland you also sounding quite tired for that one to this one but we should rest you for the live shows we will give you a bed you can have a day bed during the live shows
4: and then I, yeah, I was in in paris last week and the guardian said uh Oh, would you would you go to Cardiff next Sunday to do Wales for you? And to be honest, I p- think pretty much any other game I'd have been no. But actually, yeah, th- you know, Wales home games at the minute look look amazing, and that is such a big game. Whether you know, whether it's Scotland or Ukraine uh, for you know, whichever of those three three teams that yeah, you know, I said yes. I'm actually quite looking forward to that. But I'm so ready for a break.
3: You should get Wilson an, o- an oxygen tent or something for the love <laughs>
4: show.
2: He's in the red zone. <laughs>
3: yeah.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's because, it's because the, um, everything's just sort of run together, hasn't it? With, with, because of COVID and, and, and then the Euros last summer, it's just been totally relentless for two years. And, and I, 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 you know, normally on the Sunday after the Champions League final, the, the sort of dregs of a journalist who are left in the host city basically just get pissed through the afternoon. Nobody could be bothered. Everybody was just shattered and everyone was still having to write stuff.
2: I mean, my question for you, Wilson, is like, obviously, I know you care about the life and times of the journalist more than most. Isn't it? I just wonder if fans, like f- for them, football is their escapism, right? It's different if you work in it. Like, like Chris is a football fan. He is. I-, I suspect a lot of football fans just feel like, you know, it's a bit like football on a Thursday night or a football on a, you know, like Friday night football. It's like you-, you love football. You can consume football, but also like have other interests in your life, than other things you want to focus on.
4: Yeah, I mean, well, and also pe- people who people who expensive. go to games, you know, for travel to games yes. is tiring. And again, I say that as a journalist, it's really expensive. Yeah, you know, and it's, I, I, especially sort of if you know if you were in Paris and you, you've gone through all that trauma, to then try and sort of, I mean, I, I can't believe many Liverpool fans would be going to. Is, are England playing Hungary on Saturday is that right?
2: Yes, so, yeah, I, don't,
4: yeah. I can't believe many will be going to Budapest to to do that. You know, it's. Yeah, I, you know, I did just the whole thing. You know, I've been pretty pro Nations League. I think it's yeah you know, generally a good thing, but it just feels so
2: anticlimactic now. I like how that sentence was anticlimactic.
0: <laughs> 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 they it just, it just, it ebbed away. Jonathan just switched off. We shouldn't um, forget that the reason why we have these completely nonsensical games, including like a, a Spain Portugal in the Nations League, which normally we would be very excited about and nobody cares about really. The only reason why we have all of this chucked into June is because we have a World Cup that has been put back to November and December because it's impossible to play in the summer as was planned in the original tender and was completely obfuscated by FIFA so that they could have this tournament there. It's just another consequence of that. As to La Finalissima, again, normally it should be an absolutely wonderful occasion. The champions of Europe against the champions of South America. I mean, this is fantastic, playing at Wembley with all those superstars. Problem, those superstars would rather be on the beach. And the only reason why this game happens, which is the third edition of the old Artemio my the old-fashioned me, that's the way I call it, uh, is because UEFA have signed a memorandum of understanding with CONMEBOL, the South, uh, South American Confederation, which is basically... Showing the finger to Gianni Infantino and in his FIFA World Cup. So you're saying
4: it's a good thing? <laughs>
0: uh, I, I'm saying in in a way I'm looking forward because, for example, the, the Nations League from 24 25 uh, supposedly will also integrate countries from CONMEBOL. So we'll have joining. We'll be in fact we'll have a World Cup without all the bad teams, but in a diff- with a different name. The idea that would be another two fingers and a, a fist and a whole arm. <laughs> Shafted up uh, FIFA uh, by um, UEFA and Cundiball. Oh, there's a
2: sketch for David Squires I think so. It, That's Barry's dad, isn't it?
0: That's
3: ba- Barry's dad used to do that for it, a it living. Did, it, Barry's dad did do it
2: for a living. He, as a bet, as Chippy
4: says. <laughs>
3: not,
2: not to leaders, you know, he didn't have them in a line. Blatter, Glazer, Platini. <laughs> I'm Barry's dad, and you're going to get it.
0: Um. <laughs> and basically, well, anyway, it's, it's, it's a political game, which is happening tonight. And I was talking to a friend in Rome uh, this morning, asking him, do you actually talk about this game in Italy? And he said, in fact, no. The only reason we talk about it, is because it's going to be Giorgio Cellini's last game for Italy. That's the only thing we talk about. So it's bye-bye, Giorgio. You've been a hero and so forth. But the game itself, nobody could give up. The monkey boxed uh, monkey about it.
2: Um, let's uh, let's do Ivan Perisic to Spurs. Uh, Johnny says, "Does Spurs signing Perisic mean Conte is now the closest we have to Banter Era Big Sam?" Um, I, I, Philippe, you were excited about this. Signings. This should Spurs fans believe this is a. Uh, it shows that Conte has the club's backing, right? Like, because they don't normally sign old people.
0: Absolutely. But I was really excited because I wanted to know if you would be able to name all the Croatian players who've worn a Tottenham shirt. And you were pretty good, but you're one, still one short, my friend.
2: I got four, yeah. Uh, do you know, it took me so long to remember Vedran Choluka. I was slightly jet lagged yesterday, granted, but like, it did at least fill in, like half an hour of my day. So, of course, Choluka... Perisic, now Modric, Nico, Nico Crenshaw, as uh, you have to pronounce it, and uh, and one more. Like, even when you sent me the anagram, and then I was too tired to do anagrams. Who is it? Who's the fifth one? It's
0: uh, a keeper called Stipe Plitkosa. Do you remember? He played one League Cup no. game, and that was that. Anyway, I don't oh well, that. I'm disappointed, but I, I'm sure that as a Tottenham Hotspur supporter, you must be thrilled to have a player of the quality of Perisic. Um, now, the question is at the age of 33, and I turn to you and, and turn to Jonathan, is he really going to play him as a wing-back? Yes? No?
4: Well, I mean, it's it's an option, right? I mean, Perisic, one of the great advantages is he can play in about half a dozen, half a dozen different positions. I'd be surprised if he was a first-choice wing-back, but... Uh, you know, I think it's just bringing in somebody who knows his system, who who you know is reliable and is um, uh, versatile. I'd be surprised if he plays more than sort of two thirds of the league games. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but a 33 a year old who's never played in England before, so when you come to the Premier League, that's it's, that's ringing some alarm bells for me. I mean, you know, Thiago Silva, I said the same about, and he's been great. So different position though.
3: I think he played over 40 you've played over 40 games for this season in Syria um so i mean it's it's interesting because i always have to check myself a bit because when you as soon as players hit 30 you think all oh, right they'll be slowing down now and actually it's so different um for these players these days if if you've got a good injury record i think actually they can they can surprise us a bit
2: if nothing else and we're always looking for you know reasons for people to keep listening to the pod, the will Ivan Perisic play two thirds of Tottenham's league games <laughs> seems like an absolute a way to keep well, people hooked for 2022 23?
4: <laughs> will, will any Croatian ever? <laughs> <laughs> that, is the,
2: that, that is the question. Um, before we end part two, can we uh, uh, point you in the direction? I just tweeted out this video. Uh, it's a Guardian video. It is sort of uplifting and depressing at the same time. It's about um, the food banks, supporting food banks, which began. Um, outside Goodison Park started collecting food in the wheelie bins now a permanent fixture at every home game at Goodison and at Anfield Everton Liverpool fans bringing donations to the game Um, volunteers then distribute that among food banks and pantries across the community Uh, the Guardians Maeve Sherlaw and Christopher Cherry spent last week of the season with the volunteers as they sorted through the donations worried about what will happen in lieu of match day collections over the summer Um, and uh, if nothing else uh, certainly a wake up for Uh, people listening who aren't affected by those kind of things, you know, uh, poverty can seem quite far away to a lot of people and it is literally on our doorstep recommend you go and watch it and that'll do for part two, part three Uh, your emails and any other business Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, We're going to record a special episode of Football Weekly featuring experiences from our LGBTQ plus listeners. Uh, If you are one of those, we'd love to hear about your experience at football grounds, watching in pubs, going to games, playing football. Uh, They can be positive, negative. They can have evolved and changed over the years attending football. We'd just really like to hear your stories. We did a similar one on uh, women's experience at football. Um, The more we get from you, the more informed we can be about this podcast. There'll be a link in the description of this episode. I'll be tweeting the link as well. Um, uh, And yeah, we'd just really like to get, you know, how it actually is for you going to football, playing football, engaging with the sport. Um, And that'll come out at some point this month. Um, An awkward segue from that to Qatar. Matt writes... Fair warning that this question probably isn't in keeping with the good vibes already on the beach end of season mailbag theme. Feel free to ignore it. Your coverage of ethical issues surrounding the World Cup in Qatar has been excellent so far. I'm sure there's plenty more to come. Um, Unlike some, I don't think it's in any way a cop-out for you as journalists and presenters to be less than certain of how to negotiate the moral shit show that's modern football. I found it resonates with my own experience as a football fan, aware that I'm a tiny cog in a giant capitalist machine, but still wanting to at least try to make ethically informed decisions about how I consume the game. For all the talk of boycotts by national teams in the media, I haven't encountered much discussion of boycotts by fans. I hate the idea of not watching any of the World Cup. It's the World Cup exclamation mark. I've been increasingly uncomfortable with the idea of sitting on the sofa pretending everything is okay. Obviously this is a deeply personal decision as I try to get my head around it. I'd be grateful to hear your own thought as fans. Uh, That's from Matt. Interesting, uh Philippe. I-, I looked at when I was looking at, you know, when when England will play the winners of scotland ukraine wales and then i just saw all those countries all those flags and i was like "Ah, oh, yeah it's the world cup and i could feel myself just going down that slope of oh i'm just going to put my you know hands in my fingers in my ears for a month
0: when it comes to the boycott when it comes to um federations member associations and so forth and footballers and and technicians and so forth when you talk with people from um Amnesty, or Fair Square, or Human Rights Watch—they all said that the time has gone, is past for that. It should have been uh, an option that was discussed about four or five years ago. Uh, it's too late to do that. Uh, still, for fans, it's quite different. You can decide to switch off, and that's absolutely true. Um, you can also—that's um, what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm not going—I'm not going to go. Uh, but I guess that most of my work is going to be. Uh, centered around highlighting areas of concern around the World Cup as much as talking about what's on the pitch, because you're a journalist, you you know you have to report on what you see. And I I don't know. I mean, perhaps I mean Jonathan um, and Robin, are you going to go there? And uh, have you thought about it? Because I, I feel a little bit outside of, of the conversation because I've devoted so much of my professional life talking about all the issues associated with Qatar that I, it's always been very clear in my mind what I was going to do it's very different for you know for for Robin and, and and Jonathan I suppose and yourself Max
3: it's really hard um i've been i've been offered you know live games for the bbc in qatar
2: you can't not can you like let's the world cup like you're a football commentator like
3: <sighs> well yeah but i have serious misgivings not just because of the human rights stuff but i think philippe alluded to it i'm worried about the logistics here i think it could be an absolute disaster but you know it's yeah it's this is the the problem with the whole thing. It's just so conflicts personally, professionally. It's it's so hard. It's just so hard. I feel like you know, uh, as the uh, contributor said, this podcast has been incredible at exposing and talking about it and continuing to talk about. It. And I think Jonathan said previously how important it is, because as Philippe said, I think yes, the time for boycotting is past. This you know, probably pre qualifying really or when it was awarded, that's when that it should have all happened. But Jonathan, because that time has passed, you've said previously, haven't you, Wilson, that you've got to go and you've got to tell the stories, haven't you? That's the only thing you can do.
4: I mean, it's, I think it's our job as journalists to do that. And if people feel so uncomfortable they don't want to go, I, I get that as well. And I, I think it's probably a, a very much a, a personal decision, Largely based on on what freedom you think you will get to cover the stories properly, and I, I get that for commentators, that's different than for us because you, you're just talking about the game. It's very hard for you to go and, you know, talk to workers and and and, and or, or you know, uh, reflect sort of the feeling in the country in the way that we can. And you know, I, I've talked about this quite a lot with with Miguel Delaney, who's you've been very forthright in his criticism of, of Qatar. And he says, and I think it's a very good point, that if, if, if he doesn't go, the person who takes his place will be less of a pain in the ass for, well, for everybody, but for the, <laughs> the, the Qatari authorities in particular. Uh, and it's his job to go and, and, and make sure the job's done properly. Um, and I think that's the way you've got to approach it. I'm also very aware that once the tournament starts, the momentum of the thing will carry you along because it's a World Cup. I'm also aware of how busy World Cups are anyway. Now there's going to be four games a day, not three. Uh, it's going to be even busier than that. Less travel, I guess. So maybe that frees up a bit of time. Um, but at the very least, it will be possible to do some reporting on the ground and maybe even when the tournament's over to describe properly what it was like. But I'm also just sick of this. Like, you know, I was in Yundai in January reporting on disaster. I was in Paris on Saturday reporting on a near disaster. And I think you're right. I think the logistics of this, so many people go into such a small area I mean, I, I saw like a map of the stadiums you know, where they are around Doha mapped onto Dublin. And basically, the area is the same size as Dublin. And Dublin, I think of a city I don't need to get public transport because I can walk from one end to the other. So <laughs> it's tiny. And you get, you know, I, I've, obviously that creates logistical problems, but they're now talking about flying people in from, you know, Dubai and Abu Dhabi and uh, Riyadh and places, which again is a, you know, given this is meant to be a carbon neutral world cup just seems like an environmental disaster but it it is our job i think to go and and reflect that as far as we can
2: Mm. i mean a dublin world cup at christmas does sound quite fun
4: (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's interesting you talked about that the the
2: carbon footprint thing you know so so um that yeah they've announced same day air shuttles for the world cup uh, because there's not enough accommodation an extra 168 flights per day um so fans stay in neighboring countries I mean hey look my my carbon footprint is not great like we expose hypocrisy we can't you know uh, know, I've just flown from Australia I fly to Sydney to Melbourne for work so I I, you know I I can't necessarily you know sit in a glass house and throw stones about but if you're a carbon footprint carbon neutral world cup people flying in for games and flying back out again does not sound like a a great idea.
3: Were they also bringing in were they also bringing in like Um, sort of cruise ships for accommodation because there's not enough accommodation
0: for fans? One of my my friends, Robin, actually was one of the first people to book a berth on one of those ships. The panicky solution to that, which, you know, obviously you only think about when it's 2022, is uh, to have people staying uh, in other countries And then flying in and flying out as if they were going to Disneyland, basically, to the day, for the day. And then off they go again, which obviously is clearly what you want a a football World Cup to be about and experiencing the culture of the country and sharing experiences with fans. The whole thing is a a shocker. Um, And the more we are approaching it, the more of a shocker it becomes. And, um, you know, you're not surprised. Yeah, 168 extra flights per day for the duration of the competition.
2: It's almost like they didn't think all of this through when they gave Qatar the World Cup. The big question is, you know, do you get Denmark-Tunisia at 1pm and then you get back on your cruise ship and get Jane McDonald singing <laughs> songs from the musicals <laughs> at 8? You know, I was just saying, that, that ferry we infamously took back from Dublin. Oh, please. Actually, for that one Nottingham Forest fan, yeah. I would say I'm even more angry that Huddersfield didn't
4: get those penalties. That's what I was about to say. I mean, that, that, certainly the last two hours of that when we couldn't get into Hollyhead Harbour because of the high winds. But, <laughs> yeah, so the boat's like flipping all over the place. We've got drunk people who recognise you because of your soccer AM glory years, uh, just not leaving us alone. So I, I, you know, I remember going off to stand at WH Smith's for an hour just for a break. <laughs> like, imagining doing that in Doha Harbour for four days before i get released (laughs) to kind of watch england be around or whatever i think i think i'd literally rather go to
2: prison than that (laughs) chris says thank you for a great season. All genuinely made me laugh and think more than is good for me my weird dreams of barry ended when i stopped the tramadol thank god my question is what's the best worst injury as a result of watching football i'm asking because my best mate having cycled for three hours to join me in the pub to watch the Champions League final. Managed to trip on the way home with his hands in his pockets and smash his face in. We'd spent most of the night talking about football weekly. And then the idiot mashed his face by tripping over outside my house. Luckily, he's an A&E senior nurse. He treated himself while I ran around in a panic and he declared he'd glue or stitch himself if needed the next day. He then rode home the next morning. Uh, can you wish him a quick recovery? Let him know he's not alone in stupid football-watching injuries. Uh, yes, Um well, good luck to you, David. We hope you're okay. And uh, put your arms out to, to break your fall next time. Uh, he says, P.S. We decided we'd most likely to have a beer with Barry. Um, uh, obviously, it seems most likely to happen. Join a political party led by Philippe and spend the week hanging out with Nikki. Okay. Um, Barry says, not that Barry. Uh, hi, Max, Barry and the gang. First off, thank you for all for another year of Top Shelf podcasting. Um, top Shelf?
3: Top company? Shelf. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, sometimes. Hmm. Truly a jubilee year for Football Weekly content. Through our season of dizzying highs, terrifying lows and creamy middles, uh, there is one moment that's attached itself like a psychological climate campaign to the goalpost of my b- brain. I speak, of course, of the recent revelation that Max Russian has been on the cover of Men's Health. I was surprised, not a reflection on you, Max, but I'd never thought of you as the sexy one when it came to pod lineups. Anyway, this got me thinking, could cover shoots be a lucrative source of income for pod regulars during the off-season? I have a few ideas on which podcaster would fit which publication. I can see Lars on the sports edition of the new Law Journal, Max on a cover of a replica Sky monthly magazine from 2010, The Glory Years, the summer edition of Strategy and Tactics quarterly featuring Wilson glaring down the lens atop a great pyramid at Giza Barry on the front of Loaded because he just has that vibe. Um, I just want to say thank you for all the uplifting entertainment, infotainment over the last few years around serious subjects, frivolous and in between. Looking forward to many more years to come. Love to you all. Dirty Mike and The Boys, a.k.a thank you.
3: Is there a Corruption Weekly that uh, (laughs) that Philippe could be just like pointing? (laughs) He could be just going,
2: ah, I really want to love this, but I'm finding it increasingly difficult magazine (laughs) uh, 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 edited by Philippe Eau Claire. Uh, And this is from uh, Yvine, and I hope I pronounced this correctly. Uh, My name is Yvine, pronounced Yvine. Uh, Me and my dad love Football Weekly. I started listening in 2019. I haven't missed an episode since. I have to go on long road trips twice a week to go to therapy for anorexia. And I listen to the pod on the way there and back. It makes the time fly by, it makes things so much easier. There's something so special about this pod. I love football. I'm a Liverpool supporter. Don't talk to me about the Champions League final. I've had to stop playing for a while due to my eating disorder. I miss it so, so much. The pod helps me with missing football, gets me ready to be back playing again. My brother's a Man City fan, so you can imagine the tension in our house. No offence, Max, but Barry is my favourite. None taken. Uh, A lot of people say that. I don't understand why. I'm not sure what he's bringing to the party. I wouldn't have read this out if he was on this pod. Uh, It helps that he's Irish too. Uh, You two always make me laugh. Barry better keep his promise for all the things he's going to do at the live shows. I'm so annoyed because of the live shows. All the tickets for Dublin are sold out. My dad isn't able to take me over to England to go to one of those, which is so annoying. We're going to the Women's Euros final in July. I'm very excited about that. I think the Netherlands or England will win. Uh, I'm going to stop now because this is really long. And if you read it out, it's going to take a while. I'm going to finish it up. I love the pod. I hope you're enjoying Australia, Max. Thank you, Yvine. Listen, thank you so much for your email. We really appreciate it. Um, Everyone here wishes you uh, all the best in your recovery and look if we don't get you to those one of those live shows in dublin then we haven't done our job so uh, i haven't had that confirmed but take it from me it is now confirmed so that is pressure on producer joel and the events team uh will be in touch and uh, we we'll make sure we get you to one of those live shows and uh, we apologize to your dad for all the swearing uh, that happens in this pod was it, I, I, were any of you at the live show in Dublin when I walked on stage and there was uh, a guy he's a lovely there. guy with his two kids quite young in the crowds I walked on I was like oh shit this is, <laughs> <laughs> is going to be <laughs> awkward and then he was like just swear what you like and his kids were just utterly embarrassed but they had a good time um, so yes uh, parental advisory we'll see you in Dublin uh, and that'll do for today's pod uh, we'll be back tomorrow uh, looking back at Scotland Ukraine but for now Jonathan Wilson thank you cheers thank you Uh, Thank you, Philippe. Thank you very much, Max. Uh, Cheers, Robin. Thanks, Max. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett.
0: This is The Guardian.